when I first approached you about an interview, you were kind of like, maybe there's been a mistake. Right, yes. <laughs> I didn't have the best experience here. When you want to talk to somebody who could say, it was a great experience, it changed my life, and I can't say any of those things. Our correspondent Sasha Eslanian met Teresa Williams on the campus of Washington University in St. Louis. Teresa's an alum who graduated in 1992. I got through it, and... Um, and I, well, maybe I can say that it changed my life. You know, I haven't thought about it in that way because I always focus on how much I didn't like it here. But if I hadn't gone here, I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you. Teresa's time at WashU was pretty isolating. There weren't many low-income students like her at this elite private university. She graduated and didn't look back. But recently she returned. She took a job there working to help students like herself. From APM Reports, this is the Educate Podcast, a collaboration with the Heckinger Report. I'm Stephen Smith. A few episodes ago, we brought you a documentary called Changing Class, Are Colleges Helping Americans Move Up? The program drew on some research from the Equality of Opportunity Project. Researchers at Harvard and Brown Universities used federal data to find out which colleges are doing the most to propel Americans from low-income families into high-income careers. Today on the podcast, we want to go behind the data a bit and hear what it's like to live that experience and to make that jump to a different social class. In Teresa Williams' case, it took her somewhere surprising, back to a place she once couldn't wait to leave. Sasha Eslanian co-produced the documentary with Emily Hanford, and she joins me now. Sasha, why did your reporting take you to Wash U? So we set our reporting at two colleges in the United States. We searched for an example of an elite private college that had very few low-income students because we wanted to look at why is that the case? And, you know, not to pick on one school, but this is representative of this elite sector of colleges. And Washington University in St. Louis ended up just being a, a more pronounced example of that. Uh, it's a school that draws primarily students from affluent backgrounds. The other campus where I spent time was Stony Brook University on Long Island, New York. And that was an example of a public institution that does draw a decent share of low-income students from New York City and Long Island. And those students go on to do very well. About half of them go on to become high earners. And one of the tough things about doing an hour-long program is even though you have all that time, not everybody you talk to, not every person you meet ends up in the story. And we're here today to talk about someone you met who uh, it really interested you but didn't make the final cut into the documentary. Yeah. So I came back with a lot of tape. And one of the stories that I liked the best was this interview with an alum of Washington University, Teresa Williams, graduated in 1992. But I felt like she just had some really interesting things about her life story as a low-income student who ended up at this affluent campus and what that experience was like for her and then what she went on to do with that education. So tell us about Teresa Williams, this character. Tell us more. Who is she? And, uh, and what was her experience like at Washington University when she was a student? Well, when I first got in touch with her, I envisioned that we would have this walking tour across campus and she would be able to point out places that triggered memories that meant something to her on campus. And that wasn't 
at all the way this interview uh, started out because I wrote to her and, and said, well, why don't you suggest a place on campus that, you know, where you spent a lot of time or some place that was meaningful to you during your college years at WashU? And she said, there's no place. I spent as little time on campus as possible. And uh, why don't we just meet at Brookings Hall, you know, which is a, a place that I could ask any passerby and, and I could find. And so that's where we met. Good morning. How are you, Sasha? <laughs> nice to meet you, Teresa. Nice to meet you as well. Thank you for taking the time to um, interview me. She enrolled in 1988, and she had grown up in East St. Louis, which is about 20 minutes away from Washington University in St. Louis. But it's really a world away, and it's a high-poverty city. And she wanted to pursue medical school. She was a really good student, and when she talked with her mentors, they said, of the choices you have, Washington University is by far the best. If you want to be a doctor, you should go to WashU. And so she enrolled. I came to campus knowing that there wouldn't be many people looking like me from backgrounds uh, like East St. Louis. But I wasn't expecting the kind of coldness that um, I encountered when I got here. So what she described is even on the first day of class, when they would go around the classroom and introduce themselves and say their names and where they were from, she just felt people sort of pulling away. And she felt that people didn't want to be her partner on team projects. And she felt that she was left out of conversations. And so socially, she just pulled back and she didn't feel connected with the other students. She was part of a gospel singing group on campus. And that was about the only group that she participated in. Did she stay on campus all four years? She lived in the one dorm that would allow freshmen to have cars, and this is back in 1988, and that dorm was a little bit off campus. So she said, you know, physically, she was also sort of isolated. And the reason she needed that car was that she needed to get to her job. She was working 32 hours a week at a bank so that she could help support her family. And what that meant was that she would cluster her classes between 8 and noon, and she would often arrive in classes dressed to go to the bank. And that was another way that she stuck out. Usually a pencil skirt and some kind of blouse and neat little pumps. And, you know, a couple of students would comment about, oh, that's, that doesn't look like somebody from the hood, off, you know. <laughs> and so I was like, what does the hood outfit look like? Um, at that time, hip-hop was just popular, New Jack City and those kinds of things. So they had an image of what someone from East St. Louis and someone from the urban area should look like, and I didn't fit that image. Yet, she stuck it out, and you asked if she lived on campus. And in fact, um, by sophomore year, she moved back home with her mom, and then she commuted the last three years to finish her degree at Washington University. I finished because I had people telling me to finish. I wanted to transfer a couple of times, but everyone kept saying, it's Wash U. How many black people graduate from Wash U? And, and that degree is going to take you farther than any other thing that you could have ever imagined. And so I hung in here, and that was the other motivating factor for getting out of here in four years because I, didn't, I was so miserable I couldn't <laughs> bear the thought of being here six years. And so I had to get it done as quickly as possible. Um, and also I needed to get out and make money. She mentioned that she needed to graduate and make money, and that was really 
one of the things that we were looking at, which is what happens to low-income students after they go to an elite college like Washington University. And what the Equality of Opportunity Project researchers found was that they tend to do very well. And that definitely was the case for Teresa Williams. She very quickly saw the payoff for her WashU degree. Even though she didn't end up pursuing medicine, she became a doctor of a different sort. She got her PhD in education. And as we were walking through campus, um, there was a groundskeeper tidying the grounds behind us, a leaf blower, kind of the, the enemy of any uh, radio producer. But I still I want to play for you um, what she talked about in terms of how quickly her earnings climbed. Probably my first job out, I um, was ended up making double what my mom was making. By my third job, I was making quadruple <laughs> what she had earned. And um, by the time she passed away in 96, uh, I was pushing at close to six figures, um, which is, um, I don't know that anyone in my family made that. Uh, so yes, I was, it was very, getting the degree and specifically from why she was very instrumental in moving me socioeconomically. Oh, just let me say. Yeah. So, so this is kind of where campus ended when I was a student. So when I came back and I saw all of this here, I, I was like, wait a minute, where am I? <laughs> what is she seeing? What is all of this here? So lots of new buildings on campus. And I don't know if you caught that. And she said, when I came back. So in 2017, Teresa Williams took a job back at WashU. And in fact, she's the director of TRIO Student Support Services. And TRIO is the federal scholarship program that she was a part of 30 years ago when she first came to campus. And so now she's working with the very kinds of students uh, that she was when she was on campus. And is she making changes to how that campus experience is? um, Or has that happened in the interim? Well, she talked a lot about that. I mean, first of all, the TRIO graduation rates are like 95%. And part of that is because at a school like Washington University, they do have very high graduation rates. And so her students do tend to do well. But she talked a lot about the work that she does with them to avail themselves of help. So, for example, a student will be very hesitant to ask for a tutor. And she'll say, hey, come on. You know, these rich kids have had tutors their whole lives. They're not, they're not embarrassed to ask. So, you know, we've got help for you. If you need a math tutor or a writing tutor, just ask. She also talked about conversations that she has with them about how to navigate some of the pitfalls of being a low-income student on an affluent campus. It's things like a professor will at the last minute say, oh, you all, I need you to do this for class. Go pick up this book or go purchase this. And the students don't have the money. Or um, if the students are out with their friends and, you know, oh, let's go order pizza or let's go to this concert. And they have to, you know, make up excuses or I lost my wallet <laughs> instead of just saying I can't afford it. And so I asked a couple of them, well, what will happen if you said you can't afford it? I mean, would that be so awful? And they actually think, yes, it would be awful because then their peers would start thinking of them differently. Or in one student's case, she said that she did um, mention one time that she was struggling and somebody said, oh, I remember that time when my parents cut my credit card off and I couldn't. 
as if that was the same thing. <laughs> and so she doesn't want to hear about rich kids, poverty, or, you know, being having to struggle compared to what it's really like to have to struggle. And so they just rather would not have those conversations sometimes with people who don't get it. So it sounds like, the, in a way, the burden of adjusting always falls on the students who are from the low-income neighborhood or students of color. What, if anything, is WashU doing to help open the eyes of the more affluent students to, you know, to the reality of the students who are not from the same class? Well, it's interesting you should ask that because one of the things that I sat in on was a focus group when I was down there. And the Office of Diversity was trying to put together a course about social class in America. And they were talking with students about what they would want out of such a class and who might enroll in such a class. And so the focus group that I happened to sit in with were first-generation low-income students. And they were saying, you know, we don't like to have these kinds of conversations because there's really not much good that comes out of it for us. It just makes people uncomfortable. And then we know where the fault lines are and we just don't return to it. We don't talk about it anymore with our roommates. You know, we've turned them down why we can't go to brunch every weekend. And once they figure out, you know, why we're ducking the invitations, then it just doesn't come up again. It's just uncomfortable. And so one of the questions that they had for the focus group facilitator was, will the kids who really need to take this class, who might really benefit from it, will they actually sign up for it? And... You know, they were a little skeptical that the affluent kids would sign up to take a class to learn about social class. And it's an uncomfortable topic for everybody to talk about. And, you know, that was one of the things that came up, too. Like, we're trained in our families not to ask people about money, not to talk about our own money or lack of money, and not to ask other people about their money. So how does Dr. Williams use her own experience as a low-income student of color at WashU? to help the other kids that she now essentially oversees, right, in this program, uh, who are like her? So her message is really, you may not always be comfortable, you may have to struggle to find your place, but that when you can endure and make it across the finish line, it'll really be worth it. And she also talked about the benefits to her of having her WashU education, and how she can translate between the world that she grew up in, her neighborhood in East St. Louis, and this more privileged world of higher education. And so along with financial security, she gained the ability to circulate between social classes, which is a really powerful thing to be able to do. I can mingle in uh, a lot of different environments because of my experiences here. So I can go and hang out when I was at Richmond at the governor's mansion and facilitate conversations with the governor's wife when she's doing some community program. Or I can go to an inner city school and talk to the kids and dance with them and have fun. And Or I can just go to a um, middle-class church and talk to people about opportunities to serve and to work with the students that I work with. I 
am flexible because I've had an opportunity to learn from the people that I went to school with. And um, those people can learn as well. And so I, I just think that the more that we spend time getting to know each other, the less conflicts there are because a lot of the times conflicts are based on assumptions that may or may not necessarily be true um, without people getting to know each other and, have, and understand where the other person is coming from. So when we learn how to manage our assumptions then uh, and our responses to those assumptions, um, then we are better off as people. I really liked how she was able to zoom out on social mobility. And she was able to talk about it wasn't just that she earned more money than her mother. And yes, she's improved her life and she's been able to travel. But it's more on this macro level. And it shows that if we have a society where people can move, it reduces friction. Even though she didn't end up in the piece, you were really taken by Teresa. What was it about her life story that that really uh, caught you? I really appreciated her honesty with me about what her experience had been. You know, she made herself vulnerable to talk about a, a part of her life that had been painful. But I also really liked how things weren't quite what they seemed. For example, you know, on paper, we all think it's a success when someone graduates in four years. So I was really surprised to hear her say, well, the reason I got through in four years was because I was so miserable I wanted to get it over with. That's not really a, a box that we check. You know, that that's not something that we think about. Um, and I was also really intrigued by her decision to come back to WashU. So she had this experience that was sort of bookended at, at WashU where she had really evolved in her understanding of what this place had meant to her. And I could watch some of that shift just in the way she was answering the questions with me, that she was thinking about it and turning it around in her mind and seeing what she got out of it and what she now possesses and is able to impart to other people. That was APM Reports correspondent Sasha Eslanian. You can find the documentary, Changing Class, Our Colleges Helping Americans Move Up, on our website, apmreports.org. In the documentary, you can hear more about what Washington University is doing to increase the number of low-income students and to improve their experience on campus. We produced another documentary this season about moving up and what college had to do with it. It's called Still Rising, and it tells the story of two first-generation college students pursuing degrees against great odds. Senior correspondent Emily Hanford first met them 10 years ago, and she went back to find out what happened to them and whether college was a good bet. One of our listeners wrote in to say the documentary resonated with her own experience of growing up in poverty and being a first-generation college student. This is Peace Brandsberger, and I am a first-generation college student and graduate. It ended up putting me on a path towards a sustainable income, towards having a profession that I could build on increasingly. So it got me off of the sort of tightrope walk that I think I would have been on. And so in that way, it moved me up, quote unquote, in class. I'm solidly middle class now. But I remain, you know, almost similar like when I went to college and I didn't know you know, people were ordering pizzas. I'd never ordered a pizza and had it delivered in my life up to that point. I still am in this, like, mind warp. I think so much of what you know when you become an adult, regardless of where you get to, you just know what you knew when you grew up. And so I missed 
uh, an entire generation of being in the middle class. You know, I grew up in the middle class, and so I, I feel, I feel, I love, I love working class feelings. I just feel much more in touch with, um, you know, folks who, who ask tough questions out loud about how they're going to spend their money on pretty simple things. This episode of the Educate podcast was produced by Sasha Aslanian with help from Alex Baumhart and Chris Julin. Mixing by Mike Osborne. Support for APM Reports comes from Lumina Foundation and the Spencer Foundation. I'm Stephen Smith. Thanks for listening. This is APM.